You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Um, so I am a, I'm a stay-at-home dad in my non-preaching time, and right now my kids are all about this show called Dino Trucks. Now, uh, from the name, you might already have some idea of what it's about. It is set in the prehistoric Mechanozoic Age, um, and it's these hybrid animals of dinosaur and construction vehicle, right? Dinosaur and construction vehicle. This is like right up toddler boy's alley. And so um, these half dinosaur, half construction, all entertainment, um, the, one of the main characters is this, this T-Rex called Ty. Ty is a, is a powerful Tyrannosaurus Rex wrecking ball combo. And he, unfortunately, as the, the story starts, he's in search of a new home. As happens in prehistoric time, a volcano is exploding, and he can't stay there anymore. And so he's off wandering around looking for a new place to hang out. And as he's going around, he obviously comes along some other dino trucks. And he... Contrary to what you might think, as him being a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex wrecking ball, uh, he's actually quite friendly. And so he comes up to these dino trucks, and he's trying to, to make friends and figure out what's going on the land and, and what, what it's all about. But what happens is they see a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and they run the other way. They are, they're terrified. They're scared. They see this mighty, mechanical, massive creation, and they run the other way. Um, and eventually, though, he keeps wandering, he keeps wandering, and he wanders into the crater. The crater is where the majority of the story is going to take place. And while he's in the crater, he meets this, this little thing called, that's named Revit. And so Revit is what they call in the story a reptool. He's a reptile multi-tool combination. He's got like all these different drill bits sticking out his back and one out of his head, and, and he's a fixer. He can fix things. And, and he's this inquisitive little guy, and so instead of running in fear from Ty, he kind, of, he kind of approaches him. And this turns out to be great for Ty, because if you've ever seen a wrecking ball, like those big machines, they are knocking things over. Things come loose sometimes. And so they get this great relationship where Ty is going to protect Revit, and Revit is going to fix him up so he doesn't fall apart. And so the, they form this relationship, and they go on, and as they go on, they, uh, they meet some more dino trucks. They meet some more rep tools. They they get some friends, but as it, as it also keeps going on in all stories, there's conflict. So Ty and, and the rep tools, they're, they're going along, and they, they wander into this other, and they encounter this other massive T-trucks, another Tyrannosaurus Rex wrecking ball truck named Destrux. And this guy is terrible. He's horrible. He's bigger than Ty. He's mean. He just wants to knock everybody over and, and take their stuff. He wants to use his power and his presence to rule through terror and exploitation. He wants everything that there is, and he wants it to be his. He wants to use it for what he can get. And anybody that stands against him, he's going to crush. He's going to knock him out. So, but in the midst of all this story, um, there's, they, they grow their team, they, they get their friends, and, and they come along and they, they create this crew. There's a, um, there's a Triceratops bulldozer that joins their crew. There's a Brachiosaurus mobile crane that joins their crew. There's a um, dump truck Ankylodon, I think that's how you say it, the one with like big ball on his tail that knocks stuff over. Um, so they got this, 
this crew of like these big, massive, powerful construction vehicle dinosaur creations, and they're hanging out with them. They're trying to make it a better place. But in the midst of that, there's this one rep tool in particular of note. His name is Click Clack. And, and this little guy, he's joined the crew, he's in the presence of these powerful individuals, but he is just terrified of everything. It doesn't matter what he comes across. He's just, he's scared of the wind. He's scared of the air. Um, he, he doesn't know what to do. He's panicky. He's insecure. He's superstitious. He's uncomfortable. He's fearful. Um, and th- that's the description of this little character. Another way to say it would be that he's full of doubt. He's full of doubt. He doesn't know what, what to do. He doesn't know if he can move. But even in the presence of his awesomely powerful friends, he's crippled. I think that like little click-clack, we all have doubts, right? Everybody sitting in this room, we have doubts. We have insecurities. We doubt our security. We doubt our sufficiency. We doubt our ability. We doubt our gifts. We doubt our calling. And in this doubt, it brings up this question of power. When power is revealed... When power is before us, how do you respond? What does it create in you? What is your reaction to power? I think at the most basic level, there are, there are two primary responses to power. Power creates doubt and fear, or power creates dependence and faithfulness. Power can create doubt and dependence, or it can create fear and faithfulness. So as we continue on in the book of Exodus this morning, we're going to see some of the elements of doubt and dependence come out. In our text, we're going to step into a dialogue of God with the doubtful Moses. And last week, though, last week Josh unpacked how suffering leads to growth. He introduced the story and the start to the book of Exodus, and the people of God are suffering. They're in a terrible situation. They're oppressed under the mighty hand of a dictator of Pharaoh. They're suffering, and their suffering causes them to look for a savior. Their suffering causes them to look for help. Their suffering causes them to cry out. And for the nation of Israel, the savior that they looked to was God, the creator of all there is and all there has ever been. See, in the midst of their affliction in Egypt, there was a regime change. Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 24 the verses are going to be on the screen as we go along. Um, there was a regime change. And the king of Egypt, the current king of Egypt, died. And when he died, there was a new pharaoh that came into the land. And, and he was just as ruthless and terrible and horrible to the Hebrews as the one before him. So with no other option, with nowhere else to go, the people of God cried out for help. And as they cried out for help, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered the covenant, his covenant, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay? They cried out to God for help. And God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. So what did he do with this? What did he do in the midst of his, his hearing of their groaning, in the midst of remembering his covenant with 
their people, in the midst of his seeing of their affliction, in the midst of him knowing, what was God's response? What did God do? Well, in mystery and beauty and terror, God reveals himself to a shepherd named Moses who is tending his flock in the wilderness. At the mountain of God, Moses comes across a burning bush that is consumed and does not, does not die. Imagine that. You're out walking with your staff in the middle of nowhere, and you're tending your sheep. You're walking along, and you see you catch a fire out of the side of your eye. You see this fire. Now, I imagine Moses is walking along, and he's like, hold up now. What? I got to go over here, and I got to see this. And that's what fire does, right? Like any, any of us, fire captivates us. Fire draws us in. Just think of a group of men around a campfire. They're not looking at anybody else. They're staring at the fire, and they're just in awe of, of its presence, of its power, of its warmth, of all that it is. It draws us in. <clears throat> and so awestruck by the wonder and confusion of the self-sustaining fire, Moses is drawn in. And, and as he approaches, he sees this, this fire that doesn't fade, and then it talks to him. Out of this burning bush, Moses hears God call to him, and God says, Moses, Moses! And Moses is, he stops and he's like, here I am, here I am, God. And then Moses is told to stop where he is, not to come any further, to take off his shoes, and that the place where he is standing is holy ground. And then there, God reveals himself to Moses, saying, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Wow. Just think of that. Like you're walking along, tending your sheep, doing your day-to-day thing, and this burning bush that is, is not consumed, that is self-sustaining, like, talks to you. It gives you instructions. And not only that, it calls you by your name. It's not obscure. It's not unspecific. It's not, hey, you, guy over there, come here. I'm going to talk to you. It says, no, Moses, come here. I have something to tell you. I want to talk to you. So what, what, what does Moses do? What's Moses' response to this situation? Moses' response is, is he hides his face. He's afraid. He's scared. He's a little terrified. And I think that we could all relate to that. Fire is a, is a little scary, even though it draws us in. It's, it's dangerous. And then to have a voice speak out of that fire to you, I don't know, I'd question my sanity a little bit there. And, but as the, as the fire draws him in, he's drawn in by the mystery and the wonder of the powerful, self-sustaining revelation of God. Moses hides his face, and he's scared. And so then on the screen, we're going to see verses um, 7 through 10 of chapter 3, that then God goes on, as he's revealed himself to Moses, he's going to reveal to Moses not only himself, but his plan. His plan of what he plans to do for his people. Verses 7 through 10, where it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, 
the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. In speaking to Moses, God lays out his plan of what he's going to do, and he says, you're the guy, Moses. I'm going to use you to do it all. I'm going to use you. Now, rewind a second. Let's step back. Now, who is this Moses fella? You know, we didn't get to talk about that last week very much. We, we don't know his background, maybe. So who is this Moses? Well, this Moses guy, he was saved from death at birth through the faithfulness of women. His mother, who hid him for, for three to six months of his, the first months of his life. His sister, who stood by the river and made sure that he was safe. And then Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing in the river and saw the basket and took pity and, and had mercy upon him. And then he was, he was raised in the household of Pharaoh by Pharaoh's princess, by Pharaoh's daughter. And then, in the midst of that, at the age of 40, he steps out and he identifies, not with Egypt, he identifies with his people, the Hebrew slaves, the Israelites. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that stepping out, he becomes a murderer. He kills another man. But he's also a justice seeker. God, Moses wants to see justice, but he just doesn't know how to do it rightly. He thinks that he can just take it into his own hands and do it his own way. And then as a result of that, he, he flees. And so then he spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd, tending the flock in the land of Midian. It is this Moses that God reveals himself to visually and audibly. Not only that, God tells him that he will be the one to go into Pharaoh and then to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Now, you may not know this because we don't often have shepherds in our day and time, but shepherds were not very highly thought of individuals. They were, they were kind of the lowest of the low, in particular with the Egyptians. You might remember when we were talking through Genesis as, as the people of God came in um, Joseph said to tell Egypt, hey, we're shepherds. We take care of the flock. And so what did they do? They, they kind of sequestered them off, and they gave them this land off to the side. You might think that that's because of their low opinion of them. <clears throat> yet, uh, yet he was going to use this shepherd man to go into Pharaoh. He would go into, before Pharaoh to the king of Egypt, a self-proclaimed god, the most powerful person in the world, and tell him to let his free slave labor force walk out the door and go free. Now, that's, that's something far off in the distance in the past that happened, and we might not be able to identify with it. Let's bring it to today. That would be like a farmhand, better yet, a day laborer, going into the president and saying, let them in, give them refuge. That's what this is like. And thus, with that foundation, begins the dialogue with God with the doubtful Moses. In the presence of the all-powerful creator, sustainer God who is speaking directly to him, Moses' response is that of doubt and fear 
He hides his face and he looks away. Well, God's response is that of dependent faithfulness. And so as we go out through this a little bit, there's going to be a back and forth here. It's it's not very easy to to take one part and just do it and then come back. What happens in this, this sequence is a back and forth between God and Moses. God says something, and then Moses says something, and then God says something, and then Moses says something. So that's how we're going to walk through it here. So as God says directly to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. How does he respond? Well, first, in verse 11, he responds with insecurity and anxiety. Moses says, but but God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What, what do I have? He's saying, now hold up, God. Wait a minute. I, I know you're speaking directly to me, and I am in awe of, of what I am seeing right now, but you mean to send me to rescue your people? Do you know who I am? I'm not qualified to do this. I'm not up to this task. And how does God respond? We'll see in verse 12 that that God doesn't try to to build Moses up. He doesn't try to raise his self-esteem. He doesn't try to reassure him of his self-image. He says, yeah, I know. I know who you are. I know what you've done. But I will be with you. It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. You see, in response to Moses' insecurity, God provides the security of his presence and the assurance of his word. God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God promises to Moses that I am going to be with you. Wherever you go, I will be there too. You are not alone. You do not have to rely on yourself. I'm going to do it. And then as we, as we go forward, we're going to see that God is going to be with Moses this entire time. And God makes a promise here as well. Not only that he's going to be with him, but there's going to be a sign that God is with him. That God is going to bring out the people and he's going to bring them back to this exact spot. The mountain of God. As we will see Sometime in the future, this mountain of God is Mount Sinai, where God is going to come down and he's going to dwell in the fire and smoke of his presence on the mountain of God and speak to all of his people and give them direction on what it looks like to be in community with him and to worship him. This is a powerful sign that God is giving to Moses. Yet still, Moses is doubtful and afraid as he further responds to God with feelings of insufficiency and inadequacy. Verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, If if I come to the people of Israel to say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What what shall I say? What shall I say to them? So, So think of the craziness of this, right? You have this encounter with God, and then you go into these people who are who are in the midst of oppression, and you're supposed to go up and be like, So, so guys, um, I heard this voice in a burning bush, and, um, and he said that, that he's your God, and that you're to follow me, and we're, we're going to get out of here. We're going to go some way way better. That, that 
Sounds a little crazy, right? That doesn't sound like a very sufficient way to persuade uh, an oppressed and downcast and discouraged people to get on board with your plan of what you're supposed to be doing. But still to this, God has a response, as he says in verses 14 through 16. God responds with a declaration of his sufficiency. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In the midst of this, God reveals his self-proclaimed name to Moses. I am who I am. God reveals himself. He declares himself central and sufficient to everything and all that there ever has been and ever will be. It is God who defines himself. Nobody else gets to define God. There is no other like him. God is self-existent, God is the creator and sustainer of all. God is the same yesterday, God is the same today, and God is the same tomorrow and forever. God is eternal, and God is unchangeable. He is infinitely perfect. It is this God who reveals himself to Moses. He is majestic, and he is mysterious, and he will never, but, but in the midst of that, we will never be able to fully understand and fully comprehend God. Think about that. I know for some people that's frustrating. It's frustrating to think that, oh, I can, I can never know everything there is to know about God, so I just can't believe in him. Like, I don't get it, so I, I can't, I don't understand, so I can't believe in it. Well, think about that for a moment. Would you rather have a God that is so big, so powerful, so massive, so infinite, that you can't grasp every full dimension of him? Or would you rather, rather have a God that you know everything about, and you can package up nicely and put, put in a box and carry around with you. And whenever you feel like you need a little bit of encouragement, you just open the lid and say, hi, God, how, how are you doing today? Tell me something good about me. And then shut the box and go on your way. I don't know about you, but I would rather have a God that, that is undefinable, a God that is so powerful that, that it takes my belief and faith and trust in him, not my full uninhibited comprehension of who he is. <laughs> There is mystery and wonder in who God is. He doesn't fit into a box. Even when we feel insufficient, God is sufficient. Yet Moses still continues in his doubt. He's, he's trying to declare his inability. In verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Then Moses answered, But, but behold, they, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses is responding to God, who, who's going to believe me? Who's going to believe this wild and crazy encounter that I am having right now and take it as truth and follow me and do as I am trying to tell them? I'm not able to convince people that God is real. I can't show them that this is actually happening. I can't bring them out here to this burning bush and say, here's God. You believe me now? Let's keep going. I think, I think we can all relate to this experience, Right? 
This feeling of, I'm unable. Who's going to believe me? Who's going to take me at the words that I'm saying of who God is? I sure know I can. I feel like often I'm, I am overcome by the feeling that it's, that it's my responsibility to convince somebody of who God is. That it's this burden that I have to carry. That I'm the one that has to, to win them over. I'm the one that has to persuade somebody that God is real. That I have to get them to realize that, that the only means of salvation is belief in the gospel. That Christ died for sin and that he rose to life again so that you could have new life through him. I, we, we, we don't have that ability. We don't have the ability to do that. Not in and of ourselves. Just like Moses was not going to be able to convince anybody that this encounter with God was real, in and of ourselves, we are not going to be able to convince anybody that God is real. But see, that's, also, that's not our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to convince people. See, dependent and faithful, God is the one. It is God who has the over- ability to overcome the obstacles to belief. Saying to Moses, I will display my power through signs and wonders, God is declaring that he alone, he alone will halt them in their tracks. He alone will catch their attention, that he alone will point them to someone beyond themselves that he alone will engage their minds. The Lord, only the Lord God, will captivate them and instruct them. And all of this, God says he is going to do through Moses with a staff, a hand, and some water from the river Nile. So at at the staff, in verses 3 through 4, And he said to to Moses, as he acknowledges the staff that he has in his hand, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. He was scared. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand again. Think about that. You're in the midst of the wilderness, and your staff miraculously turns into a snake, and and if you have had any encounter with snakes or with um, any sort of reptile, like, you know that grabbing them by the tail is not the safest way to do it because snakes can wiggle in every which way direction and they'll just come right up and bite you. Uh, but God says, trust in me, I have the power, even over this serpent. And see, in, in the midst of this, God isn't just displaying his power to take one thing and make it into another and then turn it back again. God is, is saying that I have the power over everything. You see, in Egypt, a snake was a symbol of power and authority. It represented the national god of lower Egypt. It could be seen everywhere. There were pictures of it on walls, on monuments. Pharaoh himself even would have worn a symbol of a snake on his head. See, through the staff, God would display his power and authority over all of creation and even over Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. But not only that, God didn't stop there. God gave Moses a leprous hand. Verses 6 through 7 say, Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. Put it in your shirt by your breast. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, 
Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your si- inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Through the infliction of leprosy, a disease that at that time was thought to be incurable, followed the restoration of health. This is what God would display. God was going to display his power over sickness and death and pain and suffering. He would show that he alone has the power to bring life where there is death and decay. God is sufficient. But not only that, Moses still wasn't sure. So he said, if they don't believe the first one, if they don't believe the staff, if they don't believe your leprous hand, take some water from the river Nile. In verse 9, if they don't believe you in these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, we might not think this is a big thing. He's just pouring out some water and it's turning into blood. But the river Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. It sustained everything about them. It provided the fertile soil, it brought them wealth and prosperity. It was full of fish for them to eat. It took away their waste. The river Nile was the lifeblood for them. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a manifestation of, of their own God. <clears throat> the divine spirit that unceasingly blessed the land. See, by taking, taking the water from the river Nile and turning it into blood, God was displaying his ability to destroy the nation of Egypt by removing its most prized and natural resource. Even in an instant, God had the power to overtake Egypt. Yet even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this display of these great signs and power, Moses persisted in declaring his inhibition, his self-consciousness, his doubt before God. Verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. See, Moses realizes the loftiness of this task that he's been given. He's been told to go in and address Pharaoh, the king of the world, right, at that time, and his magicians, his, his posse. And, and he is, he's inhibited by his own perceived deficiencies. He says, I don't know. My voice, my language, I don't, I don't speak eloquently. I, I stumble. I, I don't know. God, I... In his, in his weakness, Moses says, but God, I, I, uh, I, uh. and to this, God responds with encouragement. In verses 11 through 12, then the Lord said to him, who has made the mouth of, of man? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, in the midst of this, God doesn't dismiss or excuse Moses' self-assessment of his speech. He declares, I made your mouth. I know what it is and is not capable of. Not only that, you don't even have to come up with the words to speak. 
I'm going to give them to you. To Moses' stuttering and clamoring of, I, I, uh, I, God says, look, it ain't about you, kid. It's about me. It's about I am. It's about the Lord. But still, now at his wit's end, Moses makes one final stand to cling to his doubt and his fear as he says to God in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. He declares, I'm inept. I can't do this. To the task that God is calling him to, Moses makes the final plea of, of no, not me, God. There, there has to be somebody else. Don't send me. Isn't that so familiar? Don't we stand behind our, our fear and our doubt, declaring ourselves to be unable, declaring ourselves to be insufficient for what we have been called to do? We excuse ourselves from displaying God's glory. We excuse ourselves from proclaiming the gospel because we're focusing on ourselves and our own inabilities. We'll see in verse 14 through 17 God's response. At this, God displays his emotion and his provision. To Moses, God responds, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth. And as and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff, which you shall do the signs. You see, often we think of God as like this, this old kaji guy up, up in heaven who's just sitting there judging and unemotional. But God is not some cold, emotionless being who is somewhere out there, who is somewhere far off and disconnected from life. He feels, he reacts, he sympathizes, and he understands. God experiences the full range of human emotions because he created every single one of them. <clears throat> so he responds with anger. He's frustrated, as if to say, Are you kidding me, Moses? Look at what I have just, I've just done before you. All that I have shown you, all that I have told you that I will do, the promises that I have made, I'm the God of all creation, the God of your ancestors, a God who reveals himself to you in a burning bush and gave you great signs as evidence. You still don't trust? You still doubt? <laughs> Yet even in his frustration and his anger, God still graciously provides. And here's God's provision. It's Aaron, Moses' own brother, he shall speak to the people on behalf of Moses. See, in the presence of power, Moses responds with doubt and fear that leads him to declare his own insecurity, insufficiency, inability, inhibition, and ineptness. 
To all of this, God provides a response of dependence and faithfulness. Through his security, through his sufficiency, through his ability, through his encouragement, and through his provision. To every one of Moses' doubts and fears, God had a response that he himself was dependable and that he himself was faithful. In this, God was moving Moses from a position of doubt to a position of dependence. It's not about you, Moses. It is about me. God is saying to Moses, trust me. I am going to do a mighty work. I will liberate my people from slavery and deliver them into a beautiful and prosperous land. And I will do this by the power of my mighty hand. All of this I will do through you, Moses. An imperfect, self-conscious, fearful, take matters into your own hands individual, I will make you into a dependent servant who I will use to deliver my people. You see, now, this is all far off. This is way behind us. But now, even today, if you are a Christian, if you believe that God came down as the man, Jesus Christ, and that he lived on this earth, that this same Jesus not only lived, but that he hung on a cross to die a humiliating death so that the penalty of disobedience to an all-powerful God would be paid, and that not only that, but three days later, that Jesus would display his power and authority even over death by raising back to life and leaving behind an empty tomb, then you are God's plan. You are his method for delivery of his message of salvation to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors, and to your coworkers. Do you trust God? Do you believe that he is able to accomplish what he has said he would do? Do you take God at his word and allow it to thrust you out into obedient, God-honoring action. That is what God is calling us to. To trust in him for all that he says and has revealed himself to be. Not to be crippled by our fear and our doubt, but through dependent faithfulness to be compelled by love and power to be obedient action. God revealed himself to Moses so that he could be used to deliver the Israelites from their oppression. God sent Jesus so that he could bring freedom from slavery to sin for all who believe in him. Christian today, God has chosen and is sending you to deliver the message of the gospel. Let us not respond in fear to this privilege. Let us be a people who confidently trust in God and are thrust out into obedient action for his glory. And now as we close, we we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity as we respond to come to the communion tables. And as we come, we get to take the bread, a symbol of Christ's beaten, mocked, and bruised body. We get to dip it in the wine, a symbol of Christ's blood that was shed, and we confess our doubts and our fears. And so too we declare our dependence 
on a faithful and loving and compassionate God, the Lord, the great I am. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you, in power and might and mystery and wonder, revealed yourself in a way that was unimaginable, a way that was creative and, and outside the box. You captivate us. I thank you for that. God, draw us ever more into you. Help us to be a people who are not dependent on ourselves and our own abilities. We are not crippled by our own insufficiencies, but we are dependent upon you, a God who is faithful, who is faithful to his word, who is faithful to his promises, who is faithful to do what he said he would do. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.